Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. There's quite a bit of overlap these days between pathology and molecular medicine and genetics, and also machine learning. So today, my guest is Kelsey Dawes, and she's experienced in all three of these areas. Kelsey is currently working on a PhD in molecular medicine, and we'll talk a bit about that experience. We'll also talk about her work in epigenetics as it relates to smoking and diabetes, and then we'll talk about her interest in machine learning. Then after the show, I've got a preview of my interview with Dr. Amy Rapkevich. But right now, here's Kelsey Dawes. So I wanted to start then with your undergraduate education, your under, your undergraduate program, which was in health studies, and this was at the University of Iowa, right? Yep, that's correct. Okay. Let's talk about health studies and what this is and what, what was the program like? Um, so the program itself is a little hard to explain. So I kind of wanted to dive a little just into like this is the story, and I think it'll make the program make a lot of sense if that's okay. Yeah, that sounds great. So kind of like ever since I was like a child, I knew that I wanted to spend like my life studying science, but the specific field, however, like it kind of like changed constantly. And so like when I was a young child, I was like the youngest member of the local amateur astronomers club. And as cliche as it sounds, I wanted to be like the first woman to walk on the moon. Right. But as I like mature, my passion like really shifted like to chemistry and then like to veterinary medicine. And um, I actually spent a few oh. years as a large and small animal vet tech in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska. And I was really just kind of hoping to gain experience to help me get accepted into vet school. But while I was there, I spent most of my time like um, assisting with surgeries and performing laboratory tests that were needed. And so really, once again, my passion shifted again and I fell in love with medicine. More specifically, I fell in love with pathology and really just being at the bench and so during the final year of my undergraduate degree, um, I actually started a medical laboratory science program okay. um, and I also sought out a lot of opportunities in the pathology labs and like assisting with autopsies. But at the same time, I was also involved in research in Dr. Robert Philibert's lab. He's an MD, PhD here at the University of Iowa studying clinical epigenetics. And I fell in love with his work, too. So it's kind of like at a fork in the road. And I really needed to choose between clinical pathology and research. And that's really where this program comes in. Because like while I was at the clinical labs, I really realized that I love learning about the science of medicine, but the workflow of clinical medicine wasn't really kind of like enough for me. Um, I really wanted to know the whys and the hows, and I miss being full-time in my lab, like dearly. Okay. So my choice then was kind of made. I was actually a researcher. So I kind of opt out of the MLS program, and I took my remaining required courses in genetics and molecular biology. And so like the health studies program, um, it's kind of like made for students like me. And it really allowed like flexibility in my coursework to really like discover and like refine my interests and my passions mm -hmm. without being constrained to just biology or just biochemistry. Um, I really had that flexibility in that program, which is really nice. Basically, you kind of designed your own program. Is that is that what I'm getting? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And then you got to pick and choose what courses you would take. Was that was that difficult to do, or did you find that you had so many interests that that you could pick all the courses and 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 it seemed to work out fine? Yep, yeah, for me it was um, easier for me because, like I said, I kind of like shifted between one thing and another, and so having that flexibility to just kind of follow my passions and my interests was easy for me. So if I dived into like physiology, then I wanted to take another more advanced physiology course. I had that flexibility to do that instead of, oh, bio one, bio two, then orgo one, orgo two, right, you know, right. I could really just 
follow myself that way. Okay. That, that makes sense to me. How did you discover this, this program, like going into college? How did you, how'd you find out about it? Um, so actually I started in college as, um, what did I start off with? I switched my major a few times. And so then my advisor is like, mm, it seems like it actually be a better fit for this program. So I started off actually biochemistry is what I started off. And then I mm. switched to kind of like a pre-med and then I switched to the MLS. And he was like, I actually think that this would be a better fit for you. So really my advisors kind of helped me in that way. Okay. Okay. I understand. Uh, I, I want to go back to, you mentioned that you assisted in autopsies for a little while. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, d- did you, did you enjoy that? Was that, was that interesting to you or was it just kind of very strange? <laughs> so to me, it was fascinating. And mm-hmm. I know that this is kind of um, a little more like unorthodox, but like, I honestly fell in love with like the path lots and like surge path. I really loved being in surge path too. It's like, I already had like some experience with just like having an organ in front of you and not being, you mean like too squeamish about it. I, I was already okay in that area. Um, and so oh, right. when I went like started the autopsies, um, it was, I was actually following or shadowing Dr. Marcus Nashelsky. He's a forensic pathologist um, here at the U. And um, so he had other medical students who were there with him. And the thing that I found fascinating is that he would present the the clinical presentation, right? So like, this is how the patient was found. And these are the things that we know, but these are the things that we do not know. What do you think happened? And so everyone would go around taking their guests and you mean like diving into the autopsy, you mean like it was like a puzzle and trying to figure out what happened, what do you see? And sometimes you're, what you thought you were so certain on was drastically different than what the body and the, the data actually showed. And um, it's really eye-opening for me. So these were forensic autopsy cases, not so like your sort of run-of-the-mill hospital cases, right? Yes. Yep. Now, currently you're working on a PhD in molecular medicine, which seems kind of an extension of uh, the health studies where, where you started. Let's talk about molecular medicine a little bit. If you had to explain to somebody what what, what this means, how would you explain it? Well, see, molecular medicine is simply the science of medicine. Um, so it's really attempting to really like elucidate the disease pathogenesis at the molecular or the physiological levels. And so Um, Most like molecular medicine research really aims to improve like the core foundations of medicine. So like diagnostics, prognostics, treatments, and prevention. So instead of like learning the clinical workup of when a patient comes in with angina, um, instead we're really studying the molecular changes that happen during a myocardial infarction, for example, um, and how we can improve the patient outcomes for that particular disease, if that makes sense. It seems like molecular medicine then kind of involves different areas of medicine, not only pathology and lab medicine, but also it seems like surgery, radiology, even uh, like oncology and things like that. Is that does that sound right? Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, several different researchers like in, in my program, they're in oncology or even just in genetics or psychiatry. And you mean like it's, it's vast and very inter um, involves many different departments. Yep, absolutely. And that's the okay. amazing thing about it. Right. Okay. So then what is the, the program, the PhD program that you're in right now? What is that like for this? Is that similar to what you did with health studies as far as choosing different areas as, as they interested you? Or is this more structured? Um, so 
for a PhD, you usually just have two years of classes. So my first year classes were kind of just like required courses that everyone in the program had to take. But then like for the electives, you could choose like a certain tract that you wanted to specialize in. So I was able to kind of like refine it a little bit that way. So I actually chose the um, cardio and metabolic disease uh, track myself. And so, but then like after that, then I can really just refine it to whatever it is that I want my PhD to be. So I'm actually taking some other classes that my um, PI is actually paying for me to take separately. So I can just like follow my interests or really like what I need for my thesis in general. And so we can more tune it that way after you take your required classes. Yep. Okay. So uh, then just like with the health studies, how did you discover molecular medicine? Um, so honestly, I didn't choose the field. Um, I kind of chose my Niels Bohr, so to speak. So kind of like prior to like the Second World War, uh, Niels Bohr was like one of the most prominent physicists in the world. And his yeah. theory, like disagreed with that of Einstein's. And I'm going to spare you the details, but um, basically, Niels Bohr taught his students his theory, who then taught other students and so on and so on. But Einstein didn't actually really teach students, right? And so this really like changed the course of theoretical and quantum physics, like kind of like for decades. And we still feel its effect today. And so for anyone who's considering pursuing a PhD, this is my advice. I choose to work with a scientist who views science the way that you want to view it. And who is in general the scientist that you want to be? Because really, it is them who will transform you into a scientist and thus like the future of science. So while the molecular medicine program is truly a perfect fit for me, I didn't choose the program or the field. Like I kind of chose my Niels Bohr. And to me, the rest was negotiable. Um, so I really chose to, I really knew that I wanted to work with Dr. Philibert because um, mm -hmm. he focuses on direct translation of his research to the clinic. So he's not a basic researcher. And he's like founded two biotech companies and both of them are improving the lives of patients and patient outcomes. And he like forms a bridge between like the bench and the bedside, which is rarer than like one could guess. And like the molecular medicine program here was my top choice. Um, I'm surrounded by PhDs, MDs and MD PhDs who are all studying the basics of human disease. And they're really hoping to like improve medicine and patient outcomes. And I've been so blessed to work alongside and like learn some from the best minds in the field. Uh -huh. um, one of them being Dr. Minier Tanaz. He's a pathologist who not only discovered the fusion protein of EHE, which is like a subtype of sarcoma, but he's okay. also working on drug development specifically for that uh, fusion protein. And so really like, as a direct result of the like the lab and the molecular medicine program it has really allowed me to like evolve to be the scientist that i want to be but i definitely chose my my mentor um and i didn't choose a program it just happened to be a perfect fit as you're going along in the phd program you're doing research as well w what are some of the research areas that you've, you've worked on so far um, so the main core of really what I'm working on is epigenetics, and we mm -hmm. apply epigenetics as like a tool to several different diseases. And so um, interestingly, uh, Dr. Philbert, my PI, he's actually, he's an MDPH, he's a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, believe it or not. And wow, okay. so um, his work kind of started in psychiatry with like substance use disorder. So we've applied um, epigenetics to smoking and to drinking, but we've also have applied it to other things such as um, heart disease and I'm expanding into diabetes, but it all kind of goes back to epigenetics and genetics as a core is more what I'm studying. Okay. So then uh, the epigenetics, so let's, let's kind of define what that is first. 
before we get into the specific things you're doing uh, with the, the smoking in, in particular. So what is epigenetics? Um, so it's kind of like a vast field and it's kind of really overwhelming and really complex at first. So hopefully I can like break it down well. Okay. Um, so like the DNA that's in your eye cells and in your skin cells, they're exactly the same, right? So uh-huh. what really accounts then for the stark differences in the phenotype of these two cells? Well, that's epigenetics. So like epigenetics, it turns off the skin cells in your eyes and turns on the eye cells in your genes, if, if you will, bear with me. Um, so your epigenome changes normally throughout development and cell differentiation, but it also changes in response to your environment. And so your DNA acts differently depending on the context of the cell and the cell's environment. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. Perfect. And so it's okay. kind of like a nutshell, like it's an interaction between your DNA and the environment. Like it's so fascinating. So it doesn't actually change the DNA. It changes the way that DNA is a it translated or expressed. Is that, does that yes. sound right? Yep. Oh, okay. And then is this, can these changes be passed on then to the next generation? So there's some data to suggest that it can. I personally am not yet convinced that we have enough evidence to say that it does in humans. Um, but there is some data like in other animal models that suggests that it can be. But to me, I think it's more that like DNA methylation, for example, is dependent on the underlying genetic variation and the environment. And so family history is really kind of an interaction between that that environment and the DNA. So I really think that if epigenetics is heritable, it's more than likely the genetic variation with the same shared environment that actually is heritable, if that makes sense. But I could be proven wrong. Uh, epigenetics is... Uh, changing fast so right okay all right so you mentioned earlier the uh the research into uh smoking and and drinking and i know i read there was a paper that you co-wrote about studying dna methylation as as it relates to smoking and and you it was a pretty extensive research project can you talk about this project how how did it begin like like what was the initial idea idea for it and how did it develop yeah absolutely So it's kind of well known that smoking increases one's risk for cancer and diabetes and heart disease and et cetera, right? But but why? Well, in part, this is actually because smoking changes the environment and that's the context of your DNA. And so Dr. Philbert was actually the first in the world to discover that smoking causes a demethylation response at CGO557921. That's a mouthful, but it's a CPG site found in the AHRR gene. And so this demethylation response is time and dose dependent. So basically the longer that you're smoking and the more that you're smoking, then the more that the CPG site will demethylate, if that makes sense. Uh So by measuring your DNA methylation at the CPG site, we can tell if you are smoking, if you have cut back or have increased the intensity of smoking, and even approximately how many cigarettes a day that you're smoking. And so he started this project uh, like 10 years ago. So before I was ever in the lab, and so it is still continuing on now. So this really is like an amazing technology that we're really hoping can help with smoking cessation treatments um, because you can measure a patient at one time point and then you can see then like measure them later on and see if their methylation has changed and see if that treatment is actually helping them or not helping them. Um, and so current biomarkers like to detect smoking don't really work very well because it's a metabolite and nicotine. 
So if you get a nicotine patch, it's going to come up positive. So you don't know if they're actually smoking or not. But CGO55 is specific to smoking and not nicotine. So it's, it's a little bit um, better that way. Um, so my part of the project really started when we already had this solidified in adults, but the smoking pattern in adolescence is different. So their smoking is more like episodic and they smoke not really as much as adults do, right? So it's not as established behavior yet. Okay. And so um, I really wanted to see if CGO55, if, if it was sensitive enough to pick up on this lower level of smoking. And sure enough, I was able to show that I can pick it up. Um, I can pick up these adolescents who are smoking and using both whole blood and saliva DNA. Also, like the amazing thing about this technology in a paper that we actually just recently published um, is that again, that we can follow patients after they quit smoking. And we can see that when they quit smoking, that their DNA methylation actually starts reverting back to the baseline, which is amazing and really able to, again, help physicians with um, smoking cessation treatments. Right. How long does it take for the, the DNA methylation to start reverting? Do, do you happen to know? Yeah, so um, we're able to see that we can detect it within at least 30 days. And so that's currently like the last study that we have um, is that we're following patients for about 90 days. The first time point they're smoking and then we were able to get them to quit smoking and then follow their reversion. And we were taking samples at every 30 days. And so by 30 days, we can start seeing a difference. Absolutely. Wow, that's that's a very short time period. Um, I'm curious, what were, if if any, were some of the challenges in doing this study? Like, for instance, I I wonder if was it difficult to get people to volunteer for this because they were adolescents. So for the adolescent study, it wasn't to necessarily follow them quit smoking, and so that was actually a the project for that was actually different, and I just happened then to use it for the smoking. Um, paper but oh, okay for to get them to quit smoking now that is much much harder so um we actually were paying participants about four hundred dollars or so to get them to quit smoking um and we would follow that up with like cotinin to make sure that they were and most of them couldn't because quitting smoking is so incredibly difficult right. um but honestly the one of the biggest challenges with um studying substance use in general is that patients lie about their substance use. And so going off of their self-report, we have found is almost useless. Like it doesn't really help us. Um, we found the same thing with drinking as well. And so needing like um, psychiatrists and physicians really need to have a good biomarker for substance use because self-report is just not accurate. And that has been really, really challenging in the beginning to try to overcome that. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, did you have to confront people when your findings were different than their self-report? Like, did you have to confront them with that? Or how did that go? No. So, well, we they knew in the beginning that we were going to test their cotinin. And then we were like, well, if you don't actually quit smoking, then you're not going to get the incentive. Um, and so oh. like the RAs, I guess, like the research assistants did kind of have to like have that conversation. Um, but usually they already knew. Right. So like they knew that they didn't quit smoking and you mean like they come in and then sure enough, they'd be like, oh, OK, or some of them just want to come in for like the third visit, for example, because they knew that at the second visit that they didn't quit smoking. And, oh, okay. and so, yeah. 
Interesting. All right. All right. You also have an interest in diabetes, and I know this led to another another project, which I think was kind of similar. But at first, was there something that influenced you to study diabetes? Yeah. So um, kind of as I said before, my PI is a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, and that's not exactly where I want to be. <laughs> so I kind of like wanted to get out of the substance use um, and kind of more dive into um, like a complex disease. Um, and so smoking and drinking are much easier to measure than something like diabetes or cardiovascular disease, these more like complex diseases where it's really multifactorial. And right. that really seemed to be like the next like logical step for the lab is to really kind of start pushing in this direction. And so, but I still didn't like know for sure exactly like what I wanted to focus on. I know that I did like want to spread my wings, so to speak, and discover an epigenetic biomarker on my own um, that wasn't already well established by Rob or other members of my my lab. But so like in those, in my classes that I had to take for my PhD, there was a physician, his name is Dr. Brian O'Neill, and he gave several lectures on diabetes and actually multiple different courses. And he came at the disease in several different ways and learning how like the, the biology and how it's really integrated was really, really fascinating to me. And he kind of started diving into like some of the genetics and how there's some kind of like a genetic component, but yet the genetics do not explain the um, family history, heritability of the disease. And I'm like, oh, well, that could be epigenetics. And so he actually now is my clinical mentor and I've shadowed him in the clinic for, um, in the diabetes clinic as well. And that's kind of really what sparked my interest. You pitched an idea for a project called Idea Storm. And this is a competition and you were for your your pitched idea you you were awarded second place. So can we talk about then what was and this is related to diabetes what was this project that you pitched? Um yeah so after I kind of decided that I wanted my thesis project to really focus on diabetes um, I instantly kind of wanted to gain clinical experience because I really personally believe that it's imperative for medical researchers to not only understand the clinical workflow involved, but also gain a deeper understanding of what the actual problem is in the clinic uh-huh. today. Because um, just reading like research papers, sometimes it's really hard for us to actually understand what the problem is. And so kind of as I already said, I started my clinical rotations in the Diabetes Center. And honestly, I thought that the problem was perhaps we needed better drugs or cheaper drugs or even like patient education but it wasn't any of those things. So patient after patient with poor glycemic control really had one problem in common, and that was their time. And so once a patient is diagnosed with diabetes, they have to see multiple specialists each year to screen for diabetic complications, and they had to dedicate time in their daily life to change the very same habits that contributed to the onset of diabetes. And right. it is so overwhelming for them. So for IdeaStorm, I pitched um, a company called Diabetes Diagnostics, which will really help address this problem. So like our next-gen screening tests will use saliva DNA to accurately predict who will develop diabetes and identify the diabetic patients who are at an elevated risk for developing diabetic complications. So like physicians will be able to use the personalized risk profile to intervene earlier and monitor treatment progress. So like since um, my tests will be based on DNA methylation, 
it can provide patients with specific risk factors that are contributing the most to their elevated risk. So really, like, my hope is that this test can not only give back time to patients by reducing their their, their in-person visits, but also allow them to focus on the daily lifestyle changes that are needed to reduce their overall risk the most, and really to help push forward precision telemedicine. And so that was kind of like the idea that I pitched IdeaStorm, and, and it went pretty, pretty well. And I ended up going on to a few other pitch competitions and um, joined uh, Iowa Innovators Workshop to really help like refine my idea with like entrepreneurial mentors and stuff. It was a really amazing experience. Okay. You mentioned going on to other pitch competitions. So what are those like? Is that like a in-person, like a giant convention type of thing or how, how does that work? So since COVID, it was during COVID time. So oh, for me, it was okay. via Zoom, um, mm-hmm. but um it was amazing to me is honestly like Shark Tank where like there was these um, investors that were on the board. And so I would sit there and I would make my, I would give them my pitch and they would, they would come at me and asking me questions about like my customer base and if I've made any sales yet and really what the market is like, do I have any partners and, and these type of things. And they kind of made their decision from there. Okay. Did they, did they give you feedback, like ways to change or I- improve the, the product? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it wasn't really the, the product itself. It was really who I was marketing it to. So at first, I really wanted to have this be like a direct-to-consumer and also a physician-ordered LDT test. But then I kind of realized that I can more give it to like insurance companies. Um, that was like one seg- segue in um, or really to like getting into Quest and like those type of labs. Mm, and once it okay. gets like really like well-established there, then physicians are more likely to order it. So instead of trying to pitch to physicians, instead I should be pitching to Quest and get it established there so physicians feel more comfortable ordering those type of tests. And so it really kind of gave me that insight and it was invaluable. Okay. So this is like a test that uh, would it be something that the, the patient could do like in their own home? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So um, we would send the kit out to them and they would, I mean, like spit into the tube and give us saliva and then they send it off. And then we would I mean, do the test and give the results to the physician. And then they could have a telemedicine appointment with their physician to go over the results. Oh, wow. Okay. And this is specifically for, we're talking about type two diabetes, right? Not not type one? Yes, yes. Currently, um, all my data, I guess, can only for certain for type two as of right now. I'm hoping to expand the complication part to type one, um, but trying to get really the, the the biomaterials needed for type one is a little bit harder. Okay. So it, it sounds like you're actually, you're pursuing this. This wasn't just some kind of project for the competition. You're actually going forward with, with making this product. Is that right? Yes, yes, absolutely. That sounds like it's going to be very helpful and it could uh, could potentially revolutionize testing. That, that's interesting. Yes, okay. that is our goal. I've talked to a lot of physicians and they're all really excited about it. Yeah, I bet. Okay. Okay. Can you tell me about your, you have an internship at a place called Behavioral Diagnostics. Uh, can you tell me about that? Like, what is your, what is your role there? Yeah, absolutely. My PI, Dr. Philbert, is actually the CEO and founder of Behavioral Diagnostics. Um, And so he has used his research for the smoking and the drinking that we've already talked about. And he has Mm. um, spun off a company based on those technologies. And so my official title there is Molecular Diagnostic Intern. Um, So I use my clinical and my research lab experience to assist the lab manager. Her name is Shelly Miller, kind of like with 
um, experiments and CLIA compliance. And I'm also sort of like a liaison of sorts between the company and our academic collaborators um, to really answer questions regarding experiment protocols, data analyses, and like experimental design. Um, so like while I have like a few functional roles there, like the main purpose of my internship is honestly to learn firsthand like the entrepreneurship side of science and biotechnology um, and like the realities that come along with that. Um, because after I graduate with my PhD, I want to get diabetes diagnostic off the ground and have it become a sister company um, to behavioral diagnostics. Um, so like really like help like streamline me towards like my ultimate career goal. Like I sit in on pitches and negotiations like with investors, conversations with pathologists on how to get the lab to be CLIA compliant um, and assist with pilot programs and like those sort of things. But currently my role is like minimal so I can really focus on my PhD. Okay, that makes sense. So what were, as as far as like sitting in on the uh, the meetings and things like that, what were some of the things that you learned as, as far as how to how to run a company like that? So one of like the most amazing ones that I've like meetings that I really can think of is like with um, our partners. And so, and how like you really need to figure out what your market is and realize that sometimes at the market that you think you're going to have, like when you're a researcher, cause you really pride yourself like in like the science and everyone wants to know the science, but really the people like your clients don't actually care about the science. They care about what it's going to do and what problem it's going to solve. And if there is actually a market available, where people are going to pay for it. And so like having that different like thought process and like changing your thought on science um, was truly invaluable. And so like sitting in with like investors, instead of going into the science of how CGO55D methylates, you mean, and it remethylates when you quit smoking and all of that, they're like, okay, well, who is actually wanting to monitor if people are smoking or not smoking and like having that conversation, like the realities of the market and how science is used and how medicine is unfortunately in part a business um, mm -hmm. and trying to play that game while also still trying to improve the lives of patients, which is, which is of course the ultimate goal. Sure. Of course. So it sounds like you, you're sort of learning a completely different field that that being marketing from this internship as well as just, you know, the, the actual science. Yes, yes, absolutely. And the one thing that my lab and being with behavioral diagnostics has really like taught me um, is that there's something called the valley of death. <clears throat> and so the valley of death is basically where clinical research goes to die. And so, but why is that? Why is it that a lot of our clinical and like medical research is not actually being translated and applied to medicine? And in part, that's due to the fact that when we're doing research, we're not thinking about these things. We're not thinking about, well, would insurance or anyone actually pay for this therapy that we're coming up with, coming up with which is much more expensive and not really mm -hmm. as effective as other things that are on the market. Um, and having this type of like thought process, like so you really, scientists really also need to be trained in what the MD's actual problem is and also business so that we can really get these technologies um, into the clinics. Would you say then one of the other, talking about this valley of death, like one of the other reasons for that was maybe that there is enough money to be made from whatever research you, you happen to be doing. Is that part of it too? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, like you can take one technology and you can kind of 
spin it in multiple different ways to be applied in multiple different areas, right? So kind of like how I said before, where at first I wanted my test to be for physicians and for directly to the patient themselves so that they can monitor it. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, well, it also though could be like applied for like insurance companies for more accurate underwritings and these sort of things. And so scientists really just like want to like learn knowledge and like apply their knowledge, like help the world. And I feel like a better way to do that, to be more successful in that is to really understand business and really understand the market so that you can take your science and you can spin it and apply it in multiple different ways. And so it can really help out both parties in that way, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. All right, that's interesting. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, you have an interest in machine learning. And so let's talk, let's talk about that then. What is your interest in it Like, and what things have you done? And, and then where... What do you hope to achieve with with that field? Absolutely. So when I started my diabetes project, I was looking at over 900,000 CPG sites. And I was also looking at 1.6 million SNPs or or base pairs um, because I'm actually looking at how the um, underlying genetic variation interacts with the epigenome to cause the onset of diabetes. And so I was looking at additive and interactive effects, and the combinations were endless. And so the methods that I was using was like um, high-speed computation methods, um, which is really, really powerful. And I do have like a really good algorithm that can predict um, diabetes status, but I knew that I was missing a lot of variables. And so really the only way to get at those variables, like the ones that are non-linear that maybe my current methods are not picking up, is machine learning. And so I started diving into machine learning. And honestly, I'm still kind of like in the beginning part of my journey with machine learning. So I'm like currently learning the theory of machine learning and the different models and learning, starting like to learn the code on machine learning. Um, But I really want to take machine learning and apply it to my diabetes project to find those nonlinear variables. But also I can use machine learning for the different CBG sites or SNPs that I did find, which ones of those capture the same variants and thus then are redundant to really like simplify the model. Because um, as a PA, you know that the only way for technology to really get into the labs is it has to be simple and it has to also be easily interpreted um, and have less labor involved with it. And so machine learning will really like help me with that. Okay. Is this part of the PhD program or is you doing this in addition to that? So I uh, kind of remember how like we kind of like talked about before, how like I'm taking additional classes that my PI is paying for. So I'm really yeah. kind of like modifying my education this way. And those are the machine learning classes that I'm taking. And so I'm taking three different machine learning classes um, starting next semester, which are not required for my program at all, but they are offered through the university, um, actually through the Department of um, Engineering, actually, to really help me with the math of machine learning and getting my coding down to be a little bit better than it is. um, So I can really push forward this project to be better than what it is now. Okay. So here's another area where you're kind of crossing over into another field, like we talked about earlier with the marketing. Now here you're kind of crossing over into engineering and computer science. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Wow. That And machine learning is certainly in pathology that's starting to become really important as far as, you know, with the digital pathology and uh, informatics and things like that. And as far as analyzing slides and counting mitoses and things like that. And I can see how that would apply to other areas of of medicine as well. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And honestly, the thing that I have really come to like learn and appreciate in the past year is that in the genetics field in general, how we really need machine learning to incorporate like the clinical variable so that we can really try to find out what's happening because machine learning can pick up all of these different patterns that we could never even think to pick up. Like the, it's such a powerful method. It truly is. And it's transforming medicine already. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it'll probably just get even more powerful as, as you know, computers get more, uh, more powerful themselves and with more memory and, and things like that. So this is a, this is a fascinating field, I think, to, to get involved with in the early stages of it. Yes, yes, absolutely. And one of like, the amazing things to me about machine learning and AI is that even if I have an established algorithm, if I just add more patient data to the algorithm, it will relearn and retune itself um, oh, to wow. be even better and even better. And so, um, yes, I'm so excited to really get into machine learning even more um, and to keep getting these algorithms to improve and improve and improve. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. This has been a really interesting conversation. I feel like I've really learned a lot. So uh, Kelsey Dawes, thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for having me. Big thanks to Kelsey Dawes. The topics that we discussed today were really fascinating. And if you think about where some of these areas might go in the future, it's really interesting. Uh, you can find links to everything we talked about today in the show notes. That's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you know someone who might be interested in molecular medicine or epigenetics or machine learning, please share this episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. Follow the link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. When you're working in pathology and laboratory medicine, there's one thing you always need, good quality scrubs. Well, Dress A Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress A Med, and if you use my link in the show notes, you'll be helping to support the show. And now here's a preview of my interview with Dr. Amy Rapkevich. You mentioned the Museum of Natural History. What was your favorite part of that when you were there? You know, now I think I can... I can um sort of explain it a little bit better. At the time, I don't think I realized, but so much of it was about the narrative of the individual specimens. And so, you know, and their relationships to one another, you know, the complex idea of phylogeny just just made me want to learn more. Um, and so I loved learning about sort of the individual story behind each specimen. And what I really liked about, you know, they call it like the, the, dead, the dead zoo, you know, because mm -hmm. the animals stay still, you know, so it's like you can really get a look at them. <laughs> okay. And I really, I really enjoyed the fact that you can really study them because they're still. And, right. uh, and 
that just transferred directly to the idea of pathology for me. To hear more from Dr. Rapkevich, tune in next week on the People of Pathology podcast.